0: Uh, If you've got a Bible with you and want to follow along, uh, we're going to be uh, once again in the book of Judges. Uh, This morning we're tackling Judges chapter 4 and Judges chapter 5. Now, I've got to admit, Judges has got to be one of the most challenging books in the entire Bible. It's certainly not an easy read, which kind of begs the question... What on earth possessed us to do this series that's lasting the best part of two or three months, working our way through the book of Judges uh, through the autumn? Well, here's why. As a church we fiercely believe that the entire Bible from beginning to end is the Word of God and that even books that are hard to read like Judges, they still speak with unnerving relevance right into the heart of our lives and our culture today. In fact today's story, although I've got to warn you at the outset, it is pretty gruesome in places so if you're slightly squeamish Uh, be warned. Uh, But even this story has got a whole lot of application for our situation, I believe. So what we're going to do, I'm simply going to walk through the story, uh, slowly making a few comments as we go, explaining it. So hopefully you understand what's happening in the story before finishing off by drawing out a few of the ways that I think this story applies to our lives. Let's pick it up in Judges chapter 4 and verse 1. After Ehud's death, The Israelites again did evil in the Lord's sight and so the Lord turned them over to King Jabin of Hazor, a Canaanite king. The commander of his army was a guy called Sisera who lived in Harosheth Hagoyim. Sisera, who had 900 iron chariots, ruthlessly oppressed the Israelites for 20 years and then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help. Now, as we're gonna be seeing over the next couple of months, really what happens in these few verses is a pattern that repeats itself over and over and over again in the book of Judges. The Israelites abandon God. God responds by delivering them into the hands of their enemies. Israel eventually cries out to God for freedom, cries out to be delivered, cries out to God for forgiveness. And God hears and responds by raising up a leader, a judge, who frees them, liberates them, and brings them into a period of peace. And things are fine until that judge dies, and then the cycle begins all over again. And so in today's story, Israel find themselves under the harsh rule of Jabin, a Canaanite king who incidentally wouldn't even have been there if God's people had simply trusted and obeyed God back in chapter one but they don't and Jabin is now there oppressing the people of God and his main tool of oppression is the commander of his army, a guy called Sisera who we're told in this passage had 900 iron chariots at his disposal. Now I think it's a bit of an understatement to say that Israel appeared to be hopelessly outmatched. For them to fight back would have been the equivalent of taking on an entire army of tanks merely armed with a few bows and arrows which I think goes some way to explaining why their oppression lasted for 20 years and also why they ended up desperately crying to the Lord for help. At which point, a character called Deborah appears on the scene. Deborah was a prophetess and was one of the judges. And we read in verse 6 here that Deborah summoned Barak, who was one of the leaders of Israel's army, and she said to him, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, commands you. I want you to call out 10,000 warriors from the tribes of Naphtali and Zebulun at Mount Tabor and I for my part will call out Sisera, commander of Jabin's army along with his chariots and his warriors to the Kishon River and there I will give you victory over him, says the Lord. And so Deborah's message from God basically guarantees victory. She's saying to this guy, Barak, look, don't worry about the enemy's iron chariots. I know uh, on face value they're pretty frightening, pretty intimidating, but you need to understand the Lord is on your side and because the Lord is on your side, he will lead you into victory. Here's Barak's response. Verse 8, I will go, but only if you go with me, Deborah. It's like Barak forgot, as I think often we can forget, that the Lord was with him, that the same God who looks down from heaven and scoffs at the might of iron chariots, that the God who commands whole armies of angels, the Lord of wind and rain and the sea, all creation, he was with him and that was all that mattered. Really, this was a test of faith for Barak and I think it's fair to say he didn't really come through it with flying colours. Now I guess at this point Deborah could have been tempted to desperately look around for another leader, a better leader, a slightly more courageous leader, someone with stronger faith but instead she graciously agrees to go with Barak. If her presence would give Barak the assurance he needed then she'd stay at his side. Verse 9, very well she replied, I will go with you, but you will receive no honour in this venture, for the Lord's victory over Sisera will be at the hands of a woman. So Deborah went with Barak to Kedesh. Now Heber the Kenite, a descendant of Moses' brother-in-law Hobab, had moved away from the other members of his tribe and pitched his tent by the oak of Zananim near Kedesh reading that, you're thinking, this is a slightly random detail kind of stuck in there, isn't it? I mean, what, what's that got to do with the story? We're, we're talking about Deborah and Barak, there's this imminent battle, and I want to read and see what happens in this battle, and the author digresses to tell us about some guy and his wife with slightly bizarre names who couldn't get along with their neighbours for whatever reason, so they took their tent and pitched it out in the middle of nowhere. Well, what's that all about? But as we're going to see in a moment, it is not a random detail at all. Meanwhile, back to the story, Deborah directs Barak and the army down to a region at the base of Mount Tabor. By the way, uh, that whole area was a river basin, which is another important detail for you just to store away in the back of your minds for later on. Verse 14, then Deborah said to Barak, get ready, this is the day the Lord will give you victory over Sisera, for the Lord is marching ahead of you. And so Barak led his 10,000 warriors down the slopes of Mount Tabor into battle. When Barak attacked, the Lord threw Sisera and all of his chariots and warriors into a panic. Sisera leapt down from his chariot and escaped on foot. Now we find out, in the next chapter, in chapter 5, that the reason that Sisera had to flee on foot was this sudden rainstorm came and the river and the river basin, remember that from earlier, it flooded. And so Sisera's 900 chariots of iron ended up getting stuck in the mud, from which point they were something of a liability. Now what's remarkable about this is that this whole episode took place during the dry season when it never, ever, ever rained. It was the equivalent of us getting this kind of ferocious blizzard with 10-foot snowdrifts in the middle of August, which, even with the bizarre nature of our weather in the UK, that that never happens. I mean, if Cicero had thought there was even the slightest possibility of rain, he'd never have taken his chariots down to that region because he knew they'd get stuck. In other words, God works this phenomenal miracle that turns Sisera's huge advantage into a monumental liability. And so Sisera ends up running away on foot. And verse 17, he comes to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite. Remember them? Uh, out in the middle of nowhere, camping out in a tent all by themselves. And it just so happens to be slap bang in the middle of Sisera's escape route. Verse 18, Jael went out to meet Sisera and said to him, come into my tent, sir, come in, don't be afraid. So he went into her tent and she covered him with a blanket. Please give me some water, he said, I'm so thirsty. So she gave him not just water, but some milk from a leather bag and covered him up again. Please stand at the door of the tent, he said to her. If anyone comes and asks you if there is anyone here, say no. But when Sisera fell asleep from exhaustion, Jael quietly crept up to him with a hammer and tent peg in her hand. And then she drove the tent peg through his temple and into the ground, And so he died. If ever there was an unnecessary end to a sentence, I think it's that, of course he died. I don't think we should to be told that. I mean, there were the tempest through his temple stuck into the ground. I don't think he's gonna survive that. But just in case we're wondering, and so he died. Now, there are any number of lessons that we could take away from this story of Deborah, Barak, and Jane. In fact, in my preparation, I came up with 12 points. You'll be relieved to hear that I've whittled it down to a mere four points that I want to share with you from this story. What encouragement can we take uh, from this passage? Well, number one, God uses people in spite of their weaknesses. God uses people in spite of of their weaknesses. You know, there are a whole lot of pretty flawed people in the time of the judges. There were the people who turned away from God, there were the leaders who turned against each other, there were the judges themselves who regularly turned away from their calling, gave in to the immorality all around them. And yet in Hebrews chapter 11, uh, you know that chapter, the famous chapter in the New Testament that kind of lists the, the heroes of faith like Noah and Abraham and Moses, the writer of that chapter says this in verse 30, How much more do I need to say? It would take too long to recount the stories of the faith of Gideon, and here's our boy Barak, Samson, and Jephthah. Now I'm thinking, it wouldn't actually take too long to recount the stories of their faith. In fact, I'd even question their place on the roll call of heroes of the faith in the first place. As we're going to see over the next few weeks, Gideon wavered between fear and idolatry. Samson was unfaithful and seriously flawed. Jephthah, he made this foolish vow that literally cost him the life of his daughter. And as we've just seen in today's story, Barak needed some serious hand-holding. Yet we read in verse 33 of Hebrews 11 that by faith these people overthrew kingdoms. They ruled with justice. They received what God had promised them. Their weakness was turned to strength. They became strong in battle and put whole armies to flight. It's as though God's great, overarching story of salvation is littered with weak and flawed individuals. But through the power and grace and unfailing patience of God, their weaknesses were somehow turned to strengths. And that right there is one of the main reasons why we're spending some time in the book of Judges, because I think the story of Israel is very much our story. The the Judges aren't only a part of our shared history, as people called by God, but they're a reminder to us that God repeatedly uses people in spite of their weaknesses. And so, if you're here today and you feel like in some way your past disqualifies you, maybe you're grappling with pretty major doubts about your faith right now, if if you don't feel very confident as a person If you struggle to believe that God could ever use anyone like you, if you look around this room and think others have got so much more than you have got, you, you think you haven't got a whole lot to offer yourself, then welcome to the club. But you need to hear this. God's plan has always been to use the likes of you and me in our weakness to bring about his purposes here on earth. Again, that's one of the recurring themes in the story of Judges. God brings down the most powerful rulers with very weak instruments. In this case, a frightened bloke who refused to go to work unless Deborah went with him, and a woman armed just with a tent peg and a mallet camping out in the middle of nowhere. That's pretty striking to me. In Deborah's song, in chapter 5 which we will dip into I'll tell you it's worth reading the whole thing we, we don't write songs like that anymore I know mean, and a, a challenge for you uh, have, have a look at chapter 5 of Judges and come up with a worship song like that and introduce it next week it, it will be amusing if nothing else but Deborah's Song of Praise in chapter 5 she refers to Jael the woman with the tent peg as the most blessed among women just put the aside of you think of anyone else in the Bible, another woman in the Bible described like that, most blessed among women. Mary, that's right. It kind of reminds me of what the angel said to Mary, the mother of Jesus. Blessed are you among women. Remember Mary's story? Here you have a virgin who's told that she is giving birth to a son who will end up being the saviour of the world. Now, as a virgin, she has no ability whatsoever to make that happen. So what does Mary pray? What's her response? She prays, be it unto me according to your Word, God. I'll tell you, that is a prayer of remarkable surrender and faith. God, I will do whatever you say, be it unto me. I'll just trust you with the results. Now, here's the question I want you to consider. Regardless of your weakness regardless of your doubts, regardless of your fears, despite all of the things that you could list that you think disqualify you, are you still willing to pray a prayer like that? Be it unto me, God, according to what you say. God, I'll give where you tell me to give. I'll trust where you tell me to trust. I'll serve where you tell me to serve. I'll speak up where you tell me to speak up because I tell you, God is willing to use you despite your weakness. Really, all He's looking for is your availability. And what this story shows you is that when you make yourself available, God will do the rest and He'll make you able. I mean, really, from a human perspective, it was utter craziness to take on these guys, Jabin and Sisera, and ever hope for victory, but God never wants us just to rely on our own strengths, our own wisdom, our own strategy, our own power. No matter what it is we're facing, He wants us to trust in His power and His strength. He wants us to remember that whatever the situation we find ourselves in, we can't do it in our own strength anyway, and so we desperately need Him. So please don't let your fears hold you back, rather let your fears drive you into more and more dependence on God. Look, when we hear God's call, we may be afraid, we may be fearful that we're not good enough, we may be afraid that we'll be rejected, that we might be abandoned, that we could end up humiliated, we could get it wrong, we we might be afraid we'll fail or fall flat on our face. But just as certainly as God asks us to face our fears head on, he also reassures us. A bit like a dad waiting to catch his child in the swimming pool. God would hold out his hands to us and say, go ahead, jump, it's safe, I've got you. And so just like Deborah promised to go with Barak, in a much greater way, God wants to come to you, perhaps even today, in your weakness and say, don't be afraid, I am with you. It might feel like you're hidden away in the middle of nowhere or that you've got not a whole lot to offer but just like with JL, God can bring down the most feared leader of an entire army, just for a woman, in a tent armed with a tent peg. And so, point number two, just to address all the women in the room, and now, guys, you can listen in anyway, uh, and and just so you know, your time will come, but for now, I want to primarily address this point to the women for reasons that will become obvious. Second point is this, women, it is time for you to step up. Women, it's time to step up. Listen, this story, as much as perhaps any story in the entire Bible gives you a stunning glimpse into the role that God has for women in his kingdom. Deborah was both a prophet on a national scale and a wise and respected leader in Israel. She is a leader of the highest, highest caliber. She, she's perhaps the wisest, the most courageous person in the entire land. Which leads me to emphasize something that we believe very, very strongly here at Church Central. Women have access to every spiritual gift that men have access to and women have a vital role to play in ensuring that we lay hold of everything God has for us as a church. So I want to urge all the women in the room, and you know who you are, hopefully, (laughs) I want to urge all of you to step up and take responsibility, because God has a calling on your life, and there are specific gifts that he has entrusted to you to use for the advance of his kingdom. And so you're not just to kind of sit on the sidelines and observe, but like Deborah, you need to get into the fight, and I know many of you are already in the thick of the fight, well you need to advance further in the fight because we desperately need more women like Deborah in society as a whole and certainly in the church, women who will lead with wisdom and with courage and with faith and if God has called you to any form of leadership whatsoever, whether it's in the workplace or in the church, I tell you I want Church Central to be the very best at encouraging and equipping and releasing you to become those leaders. But here's the thing, sadly, very often, people don't hear that message, because in both the Old Testament and the New Testament, God establishes certain roles or positions that he wants only men to play, and others he wants only women to play. In the Old Testament, for example, women, uh, according to, to God's order, couldn't be priests. Or you see here in this story that, that Deborah didn't lead the army, so when Barak holds back, she doesn't step in and say, okay, well, move aside, I'll do it then. She doesn't go there. Or do you notice how when she's introduced in chapter 4, she's identified as the wife of Lapidos? Now, now, parents, if you're looking for children's names, Judges is, is, is a Welsh. Of ideas that, that no one else has ever thought of. I mean, you, your child will stand out in, in their year group going all the way through the education. It's Lapidoth, just store it away for later, a great name. Now, just to say, uh, introducing Deborah as the wife of Lapidoth, that, that's a Hebrew way of indicating that she has an identity in a home that's led by her husband. So even in her role as prophet on a national scale, she identifies herself in a home that's led by her husband, because that's a role that God's given him to play. And then in the New Testament, you're perhaps familiar with what Paul says in 1 Timothy 2 and 3, where he says that women shouldn't serve in the role as elder in the church, or teach with authority, which I hasten to add, doesn't prohibit women from leading in other spheres, or once again to say, from exercising all the same spiritual gifts that men have. However, there's often been this forced dichotomy or tension put forward in the church. It's like, either you believe there is actually no distinction of roles at all between men and women, or you believe that women can only serve in some kind of diminutive, hidden, behind-the-scenes role because they don't have the capacity to lead. I tell you, we need to reject that dichotomy head-on and instead humbly adopt what the Bible puts forward as our standard. Women are equals without being equivalents. The Bible teaches equality of position before God, equality of gifting, but with distinctive roles to play in family life and in church life. And so although the Bible consistently teaches that that men were created to lead with authority, that's not to say that women can't have authority or influence or leadership, or that somehow women are weaker or less capable. And it's certainly not the case that women are any less valuable, because This could be the most important sentence I say today, (laughs) maybe even this year, so listen up, I'm just going to lob it out there and then move on. Uh, I mean, I could spend the rest of the morning talking about this, but I'm trusting you'll hear it. Here's the thing, our value as humans lies in being made in the image of God, not in what we do, not in our role, our value comes in being made in the image of God and if you get that, it is phenomenally releasing. And before we go any further, I just want to pause and I want to apologise to all the women in the church here because I feel as though perhaps we haven't always emphasised this message enough over the years and I'll tell you, I'm so sorry if for whatever reason you have ever felt in any way like you haven't been invested in, or that there aren't opportunities for you to grow in and develop your God-given gifts, please hear it from me. I want Church Central to be a church where men and women alike are able to flourish in all that God has for them. I certainly don't want us to water down the Bible's teaching on distinctive roles because you know I think that's a message that desperately needs to be heard in our gender confused society today but through it all I want us as a church to be the most encouraging, the most releasing, the most equipping, the most liberating, the most freeing community imaginable and I think Deborah is a brilliant example of the kind of partnership between men and women that truly honours God So that's lesson number two. Women, you got the message? It's time for you to step up into all that God has for you. But there's more though. Deborah, as I've said already, she writes this song. And in it, she lists the various tribes who stepped up to fight and those who didn't. Now, out of mercy to you, I'm not going to sing it to you. I'm merely going to read bits. Imagine it set to music. And again, after I've gone later, if you want to introduce any of this, just, just a little gift to you. Uh, verse 14. Deborah sings, I'm just going to say it, how they came down from Ephraim. Verse 15, the princes of Issachar, they were with us. Verse 18, the the tribes of Zebulun, they risked their life as did Naphtali, honouring all these people who joined the fight. And we see in verse 15 that there was great indecision in the tribe of Reuben. And verse 17 tells us that Gilead remained east of the Jordan and Dan simply stayed at home which causes Deborah to conclude, and all of this is a worship song, by the way. I mean, imagine, <laughs> kind of singing about that. Well, well, so-and-so, they're not here today, they're just in bed, uh, but so-and-so, oh, they're in the fight. I mean, <laughs> like I say, don't quite write, write like that anymore, but it causes Deborah to conclude, blessed are the ones who stepped forward in faith to fight. Now, since I've spent quite a while on this point with the women, it's only fair that I direct the next one specifically towards the men in the room. So men, come back in. Point number three, is time for you to step up as well. That's my point. It's time for the men to step up. You know, there's one way of reading the story of the fall back in Genesis chapter 3 where you see the original sin beginning with passivity on the part of the man. You see, God had given Adam the very specific instruction not to eat the fruit of this one particular tree. And in Genesis 3, we get to eavesdrop on the conversation between the serpent and Eve, where the serpent lures her into eating the forbidden fruit. Now, we're perhaps tempted to imagine that Adam all this time was off somewhere else, I don't know, chopping down trees or having his quiet time or whatever. But what we see in the text is that Adam was actually with Eve while all of this was going on, but chose to remain silent. So before Eve ever did anything wrong, I suggest there was a failure on the part of Adam to do anything at all. You know, I think perhaps the great temptation for men... Is not necessarily to do anything evil, it's simply to do nothing. And I don't mean to be offensive, I'm a bloke myself, I know how we're wired, I, I know the way we think and we act, but I reckon we've got a whole lot of men across our sites in the church here who aren't necessarily bad, they're just for whatever reason hanging back and remaining silent or being passive when they ought to be leading out. In fact, there's a line deep in the midst of Deborah's song that says, When the princes lead, we praise the Lord. Men. God has given you a crucial role to play that cannot be replicated by anyone else and if this church and if your family, if you have a family, are going to fully praise the Lord, it's at least in part because you step forward to lead and when you do that, the people will praise the Lord. As Deborah lists out the people who chose not to join the fight but set on the sidelines, she reaches a crescendo in verse 23. Let the people of Meroz be cursed, said the angel of the Lord. Let them be utterly cursed because they did not come to help the Lord, to help the Lord against the mighty warriors. That doesn't say they did anything bad, just that they did nothing. Now, if you've been around the church for any length of time... You've probably heard me rail against those who kind of look at this church more like a meeting they attend once a week. Look, if you're more a spectator than a participant, I usually point out how much you're missing out on, that the joy of putting down your roots and playing your part, the reward there is in terms of being in the church and fully giving your all to the cause that God has for us. But the passage here takes it a step further. It's like sitting on the sidelines not only robs you of reward, is way more serious than that. It's like God curses you and that's not my opinion, it's simply what it says in this passage. And so maybe you need to have a bit of a review of your life right now. Are you intentionally active in the Kingdom of God with your time? Are you making sure you use your talents to honour God. How how much of your resources are being invested in the expansion of God's kingdom? You know, when Jesus called his disciples, he didn't say, I just want you to sit over there and watch me and stay out of trouble. Or, all I want you to do is listen very attentively, take loads of notes. There's nothing wrong with that, but Jesus took it further. He said, I want you to follow me. And I believe he does the same today. I think some of you need to stop merely listening and watching and start actively following. That's all well and good. Maybe you haven't got a clue where to start. Well, you can start by joining the church. Put down roots in the church, get more involved. You can serve, give, invite others along. If you have a family, take more responsibility, don't be passive take a lead. Yes, with gentleness. Yes, with humility. Yes, with love. Yes, with kindness and care, but take a lead. In your work, don't shirk responsibility. Don't cut corners. Look to honour God by doing your best. Be decisive. Take a lead. So men and women, which I think covers everyone in the room. It's time to step up. It really is. It is time to step up. Why? Well, because you asked. Fourthly and finally, because God ultimately deserves the glory. Really, this is the reason, this is the explanation. This is the motivation behind everything else I have said. It's the reason why God insists on working through our weakness. It's the reason why each of us men and women alike need to step up and take responsibility. Take a lead. Take seriously what God has called us to do. And ultimately it's the reason for this story in Judges. At the end of the day, it's not about Deborah or Barak or Jael or even you. It's not about you making more of a name for yourself. It's all about God and His glory. Because from start to finish, He's the one who's at work. I mean, remember how it all began with the Lord speaking to and through Deborah back in... Verse 6 of chapter 4, Deborah goes to Barak, she says, this is what, not what I say, but what the Lord, the God of Israel, commands you. Again, it was the Lord who went ahead of Barak and gave him the victory, verses 14 and 15. This is the day the Lord will give you victory over Sisera, for the Lord is marching ahead of you. And Barak attacked the Lord threw Sisera and all his chariots and warriors into a panic. And according to verse 9, it was the Lord who handed Sisera over to Jael. Which is why verse 23 says that it was God and not Deborah, not Barak, not Jael who defeated them. So on that day, Israel saw God defeat Jabin, the Canaanite king. Do you see? you get the message. All the way through, it was God who was speaking. It was God who was orchestrating events. He was pulling the strings. He was overcoming. He was rescuing. He was delivering. And so he deserves the glory. And the fact that he uses people to bring about his purposes is a privilege for them, not a source of pride or praise for them. Their actions all along were really God's actions. And so all the praise should go to him which is exactly what happens in chapter five as Deborah bursts into this glorious spontaneous song of praise of the God who leads his people into victory. Listen, God works through our weaknesses so that through our dependence on him, all glory goes to him. And the reason for calling you to step up today isn't so you can better yourself. It's not so you kind of improve your self-worth. It's not even so you make a name for yourself. It's so that God receives more and more glory through you. Because at the end of the day, really, God doesn't need your help any more than he needed the help of Jay or Barak or Deborah. But in his kindness, he draws us into the story of what he's doing, allowing us to help giving us a part to play, affording us dignity. As Tim Keller puts it, because no sermon would truly be a sermon without a quote from Tim Keller these days. Tim Keller says, we can and should live our lives not simply recollecting what happened or what we did, but searching out what God was doing. This keeps us from over-honouring ourselves in success Or despairing in our struggles. Part of the key to enjoying peace is to be continually praising the Lord for what He has done and is doing for us because the story we tell of our lives is not so much about us as about Him. So let's not make it about us, let's give our lives for the praise and glory of the Lord. Let's learn to see God's hand behind everything but let's be quick to celebrate success in a way that honours him. Let's live our lives with a continual note of praise. And can I say let's not make it all about us but all about him and his honour and his renown in all the earth because ultimately everything good that we have ever done or ever will do simply cannot be explained apart from God and His work in our lives. From beginning to end, it's all planned by Him. It's all His gracious gift to us. It's all because of Him. It's all His doing. And so He deserves all the glory.